Good afternoon. Welcome to this seminar of the Middle East Center. It's a great pleasure for me to introduce our speaker for today, Dr. Rebecca Steinfeld. Uh, she's a political scientist whose general field is comparative politics and her main research interest is the politics of reproduction. Um, I'm Avi Schlein. I am a member of the advisory board of the Middle East Center and I was a student here 46 years ago. I did the MSc in international uh, relations. Um, Dr. Steinfeld was a research fellow, at the, is a research fellow at the Center of Body at uh, Goldsmith College in the University of London and she was a visiting fellow at the Middle East Center here in 2015-2016. It's a particular pleasure for me to chair this session because Rebecca was my student at Oxford. She did a DPhil in politics and she completed her DPhil thesis in 2012. She's currently working to develop her doctoral thesis uh, into a book on the history and politics of reproduction in Israel. And this book will be published next year by Stanford University Press. Rebecca has written and broadcast very widely on a range of topics relating to the politics of the body and the history of Israel. In particular, uh, she's uh, written and broadcast on the ethics of male circumcision, fertility policies in Israel, and more generally on liberal Zionism. Uh, alongside her academic research, Rebecca is a co-founder together with her partner, Charles Kaydan, of the Campaign for Equal Civil Partnerships. Um, her topic today is not the one that was that I was originally given. Uh, her topic, the topic of her presentation today, is the war of the rooms struggles over abortion policies in Israel. Um, Rebecca, it's a great pleasure to be here, and we all look forward to hearing uh, your presentation. Oh, thank you, Abby, for that kind introduction. Um, and thank you most of all for giving me the opportunity to do my DPhil with you um, at Oxford. You supported me through the good times and the hard times, and there were many hard times, um, and I really appreciate that. Thank you also to Sandra at the Middle East Centre for organising all the arrangements for this evening, um, and to Rob Lowe, though he's not here, the centre manager, for um, inviting me to be a visiting scholar um, for the past year, though I wasn't able to really be very present because... I uh, gave birth to my first child a year ago, so I've actually been on maternity leave, and this is my first talk post-maternity leave, so please be gentle. <laughs> um, so I'm going to be talking tonight um, about the wars of the womb struggles over abortion policies in Israel. The talk that I'm giving is actually drawn from a journal article, a copy of which I have here, um, that I published in the journal Israel Studies last May. So... If what I say this evening piques your interest and you want to know more, especially about the historical context that I'm referring to, then please have a read of the article. 
So does anybody know anything about this hashtag, We Trust Women? Anybody come across it lately? No? So it's been in the news here in the UK um, because a campaign was just launched to try to decriminalise abortion here in England and Wales as well as in Scotland. Um, because at the moment, as a, a result of the legacy of the British Offences Against the Person Act 1861, abortion here remains illegal except if a woman um, before her 24th week of pregnancy um, is able to convince two doctors to sign off on her termination. Um, the reason I mention this will become clear during my presentation because there is a connection here to Israeli abortion law. So the presentation I'm giving tonight um, comes from my broader research, which is on the history and politics of reproduction in Israel. Specifically, when I started off my doctoral studies with Abby, I was very interested to know whether or not abortion policies in Israel, sorry, reproductive healthcare policies in Israel had been formulated in such a way to try to encourage certain groups of the population to have more children and discourage others from having as many children as they were having. So I was really interested in the extent to which these policies had been politicised, essentially. And I looked at a whole range of different reproductive health care policies. I looked at contraception and family planning. I looked at advanced reproductive technologies. I looked at child allowances as well to try to figure out exactly what the substance of these policies were and had been over time and also what the motivations behind them had been of the policymakers who formulated the policies. I was particularly interested to know whether or not pronatalism, which is a term I'll repeat quite a lot probably in this talk, which means the encouragement of childbirth, and for which Israel is, is generally characterised as a pronatal state um, that encourages childbirth, whether or not that pronatalism existed for all subgroups within the Israeli population or not. And I employed a methodology that was both historical and political science-based, so... As Abby will remember, first of all, I set off at Israel with pretty much no Hebrew, spent quite a bit of time at the Hebrew University elevating my Hebrew to as close to fluency as I could get. Um, and then I essentially sat in the Central Zionist Archives and the Israel State Archives in Jerusalem, ferreting around in boxes of papers that related to um, minutes of meetings of committees that had to do with any of these areas, correspondence between ministerial offices that had to do with these areas, um, newspaper clippings. And for this talk um, that I'm giving this evening, I also consulted a memoir by a quite well-known um, Israeli feminist former member of the Knesset called Marcia Friedman, um, who wrote a, a memoir called Exile in the Promised Land. She was very involved in the um, reform of abortion law in the 1970s in Israel, so I looked a lot at her work. And finally, I did a number of interviews um, with policymakers and practitioners in the field of reproductive health. So just about the structure of the talk I'm going to give, what I really want everyone in this room, and I thank you all for coming in this really muggy weather, um, to walk away with is a sense of the contemporary situation regarding abortion in Israel, and essentially I would characterise that as a gap between the legal status of abortion and then the actual access to abortion that people have. And they're going to try to explain how it came to pass that there was this gap between the legal and the actual status of abortion. And finally, I'm going to reflect somewhat on the impact and implications of this situation for women's reproductive experiences, for their rights, and for reproductive justice in the context of Israel. 
So turning to the first part, the gap between law and practice. So technically, abortion is officially illegal in Israel according to the 1977 penal law, the interruption of pregnancy, as it is known. Now, there are two exceptions to this. If a woman fulfills one of four criteria, which I'll come to in a moment, she may access an abortion illegally, but she also has to go before a pregnancy termination committee um, in order to receive permission, according to those four criteria, to be given um, a, a legal abortion. Now, the legal criteria are as follows. So if a woman is under the age of marriage, which is currently 18, or over the age of 40, if her pregnancy is a result of criminal, incestuous, or extramarital relations, um, and extramarital here means not only um, an affair, but also premarital. Um, if the fetus has a physical or mental defect, though the law does not specify what kinds of defects, nor how likely the manifestation of the defect has to be in order to come under this particular clause. It's left vague. Um, if the fetus, the continuation of the pregnancy, is an endangerment to the woman's life or could cause her harm. And originally, when the law was passed in 1975, there was a fifth clause, but that was repealed in 1980. Um, for reasons that I'll explain later. But that clause essentially said that if the, um, having another child was likely to cause severe damage to either the woman or her children because of the difficult social um, or familial conditions of her or her family or her environment, then she'd be entitled to have a termination legally on that basis. Um, and that was perceived to be the most permissive um, of all the criteria. So that's, that's the legal status of abortion in Israel. But what actually happens in practice? Well, in practice, abortion is widely available. Um, of the applications to the pregnancy termination committees, the vast majority are approved. So between 1990 and 2013, 96.5% of all those who applied were given permission to terminate their pregnancies. That's according to statistics from Israel's Central Bureau of Statistics. Um, a woman may, theoretically at least, have a termination in a hospital of her choice <coughs> up to 40 weeks gestation, so up to full gestation. Now, that's because the law itself does not specify any time limits, which is quite different from the situation here, for example, where there's a time limit at 24 weeks, after which point a woman may only terminate her pregnancy if there's a very high likelihood of a very severe fetal abnormality. Um, but in Israel, that's not the case. There's no time limit. The state also pays for many women's terminations in Israel, um, except if the woman is between the ages of 33 and 40, um, unless the um, termination is an emergency or the result of rape or sexual abuse. A minor does not require parental consent, and it's estimated that there are 40,000 abortions per annum in Israel. Now, that's not what the actual statistics from the Central Bureau of Statistics show, which simply report back those applications that have been approved and then result in terminations. That's the legal abortions. But there, it is estimated that half of all the abortions that take place in Israel, um, double that amount, um, are actually illegal private abortions for people who either don't fulfill the criteria um, or don't want to go through the committee process, even if they do fulfill the criteria, 
and they seek private legal abortions. But doctors are very, very rarely prosecuted. So essentially, there's no ban on abortion in Israel, but women don't have full reproductive autonomy. They don't get to decide for themselves um, whether, whether to continue or terminate a pregnancy on any basis. And that leads the political scientist Yael Yashai to characterize Israel as what she calls an intrusive state. So she says that's a state in which there's limited individual choice, but there is a commitment to implementation. And that essentially puts Israel in the middle of a spectrum in relation to freedom and rights relating to abortion. So at one end you would have a restrictive state like Ireland, where there is no choice for women at all, um, and abortion is only allowed if the continuation of the pregnancy represents an imminent and urgent um, threat to the mother's life. And even then, as we've seen, some of you may have heard the case of Savita Halapanova, um, who died as a result of a septic miscarriage because the doctors in Galway would not terminate her pregnancy until the baby's heart literally stopped beating, and she died as a result of that. Um, so that, that's Ireland. And then you have states like the United States, where you have a theoretical choice as a result of the Supreme Court case in 1973, Roe v. Wade, which says that a woman is a person, she has a right to privacy, the fetus has no personhood. But in actual fact, largely as a result of the actions of pro-life groups, there's increasingly limited opportunities for implementation for women to access um, abortion facilities and clinics. So the question then, in relation to Israel, is what accounts for this intrusion into women's reproductive lives? Why is the state of Israel limiting individual choice when it comes to whether a woman continues or terminates her pregnancy? And what are the implications for women's reproductive rights? And this is where I move on to the second part, the conflict between policymakers that I think has led to this situation. So essentially, in a nutshell, the reason that Israel has this intrusive approach and the reason that there is this gap between the de facto and the de jure statuses of abortion is a result of the compromise that was necessitated by conflicts between policymakers with different values and beliefs and interests that I think spanned essentially four historical periods. So these struggles emerged immediately after the onset of Zionist settlement in what was then Ottoman Palestine in 1882. Um, and it was clear that even amongst the Jewish community in Palestine, amongst members of the Yishuv, that abortion was was an issue and that there were struggles that emerged between um, policymakers even then. These intensified after Israel became an independent state in 1948 and um, Israeli policymakers were then faced with having to make decisions about whether or not to continue the laws that they had inherited from the British, which was the 1936 Penal Code, which was based on the 1861 Offences Against the Person Act, which criminalised all forms of abortion except in the case of um, imminent threat to the mother's life. So there was a question about what to do with this inheritance, whether to keep it, maintain it, um, or change it. And this all came to a climax in the 1970s um, over, over debate, during debates over abortion law reform. Um, but the struggles have continued since the 1980s. And as I said, if you want to know more about the sort of historical nuance of each of these periods, then please have a look at my paper. Because right now, I'm just going to paint a very broad brush strokes. Essentially, there are two rival groups. Um, pronatalists on the one hand, so those seeking to encourage childbirth and increase fertility. 
Um, and then and who oppose abortion because they link abortion to a decline in fertility. And against those who support abortion, um, which is a mixed bag of um, individuals and groups um, who have quite different and not necessarily cohesive um, ideas. So in terms of opposition to ab abortion, the two primary groups would be the ultra-Orthodox and Orthodox, um, and those concerned about demography. And in relation to those who support abortion, you have those who are concerned about the dubious legal position that physicians who were practicing abortions were in as a result of conducting abortions that had a semi-official but technically illegal status. Those concerned about women's health um, as a result of not being able to access abortion. Um, those concerned about family welfare and societal welfare and societal stability in a context in which women have unrestrained fertility and don't have access to abortion. And much less so, feminists, who on principle were concerned about a woman being unable to control her reproductive life um, and therefore being disempowered. So I'm just going to go through each of these groups to give you a sense of exactly what it was that motivated them. So orthodox opposition to abortion relates to orthodox pronatalism. So the biblical commandment to be fruitful and multiply is seen by most, um, if not all, Orthodox Jews as a divine imperative upon them. And they see abortion as a, as a method that would decrease that commandment. Um, they also they believe that um, abortion is justified only in the context of the fetus being what is described as a rodef, or a pursuer, i.e. a threat to the mother's life. So only in that circumstance is abortion tolerated and tolerable from an ultra-Orthodox perspective. Um, interestingly, though, Orthodox Judaism does not accord the fetus autonomous rights, um, which provides some leeway in relation to Orthodox responses to abortion. However, the Orthodox community was extremely concerned when the original abortion law was passed, that that fifth social clause was being used to target their community um, because, the, because it was perceived as being poor and having a high birth rate and dependency on the state. And there was a perception that, um, that the social clause had been put in place to partly target the, the Orthodox community. And there was a fear amongst the Orthodox, that women in their communities would um, surreptitiously um, access abortion, be able to access abortion on this basis, and there'd be a loss of control um, of, amongst the, the male Orthodox. So the evidence of Orthodox opposition to abortion is that in 1975, during the debate uh, about the bill, they voted against um, the 1975 bill, the ultra-Orthodox parties, and they joined a demonstration outside the Knesset when the, when the um, vote was actually taking place. Um, in 1977, as part of the ultra-Orthodox party Agudat Israel's coalition agreement with Likud, um, they made removal of the social clause a condition of their being part of the coalition. Um, and the Sephardi and Ashkenazi chief rabbis both vocally oppose abortion, as far as I'm aware, continue to do so up until today. So that's ultra-Orthodox pronatalism and opposition to abortion. But there's another element to opposition to abortion which concerns demography. Now I think this can really be split up into two areas. 
One relates to the decimation of European Jewry as a result of the Holocaust, um, which led to fears, especially in, the imme- in its immediate aftermath and during the early years of the State of Israel, um, about Jewish survival. Um, and some called for making up the numbers and replacing the six million. But certainly this idea that there was um, a major problem in relation to Jewish survival and Jewish continuity as a result of the decimation of European Jewry and that there was a need to hike up the Jewish birth rate inside the newly formed state is really prominent in the archival sources that I looked at when it came to demographic opposition to abortion. At the same time, there's another element to the demographic discourse opposing abortion, and that relates to the regional demography. So essentially... There, is, there has been historically quite intense demographic anxiety um, inside Israel as a result of the demographic discrepancy um, relating to founding a Jewish state in a, and an Arab region. And that was particularly for an intense fears about the Muslim-Arab Jewish fertility differential. So the gap between the total fertility rate of Jews and particularly Muslim um, Palestinian Arabs and that was really fueled by comments that Yasser Arafat, the former um, leader of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, made um, about when he, when he allegedly referred to um, Palestinian women's wombs as his greatest weapon um, and talked about them as a time bomb threatening to blow up Israel from within. Um, and, th- and that very much played on this fear of demographic danger, um in Israel, and led to fears about the survival of the state itself. So just to give you a sense of the fertility differential that became such an issue of concern at certain points, not always, but as you can see in this, this graph is from the um, Central Bureau of Statistics and it plots the total fertility rates by mother's religion um, over time. So from 1949 right up until 2013, and the total fertility rate is the total number of children that a woman would be expected to bear over the course of her lifetime. Um, so what you can see here, the green line is the Muslim population, the blue line is the Jewish population. So the Jewish fertility rate has, has remained relatively stable over time, um, a slight decline and then sort of regaining somewhat. Um, by contrast, the Muslim fertility rate was in the mid-1960s nearly double that of the Jewish fertility rate. So Muslim women inside the state of Israel were having nearly 10 children per woman in the mid-1960s as compared with just under four um, for the Jewish women. And there was intense fear that if that continued, that eventually the Muslim Palestinian Arab population would, would outnumber that of the Jews. Um, it has dropped off over time quite, quite markedly. One can debate and discuss why. Um, but it still remains higher than that of the Jewish population. So this does remain um, an issue of concern. So David Ben-Gurion, Israel's first prime minister, this is what he said about the Jewish birth rate in Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper, in 1967 in the wake um, of a war which brought um, millions of Arabs under Israeli control. He said, the increase of the Jewish birth rate is not an imperialistic need, but rather an essential component of the survival of the people. Any any woman who does not have four children, as much as it depends on her, is betraying the Jewish mission. should be mentioned here that, somewhat ironically, David Ben-Gurion and his wife Paula actually only had three children, and one of them, Renan Lashem, only had one. 
so he didn't exactly practice what he preached. Um, as further evidence of the demographic anxiety that's specifically linked to abortion, in the 1975 debate about abortion and reform, this is from Marcia Friedman's memoir, she said that when she ascended the rostrum in the Knesset, she heard people shouting, other MKs shouting things like, tens of millions of Arabs who are fruitful and multiplied surround our borders. And I want to ask you something, has Arafat given his consent to this law? So you can very much see in the, in the minds of policymakers this clear linkage between the demographic threat posed by the Arabs, access to abortion, a decline in Jewish fertility rates. Eli Yishai, the former leader of the um, Orthodox Mizrahi Jewish Shas Party, said in 1998, I expect the Public Council for Demography to suggest new ways to increase the Jewish birth rate and to prevent abortions. And when I interviewed this man here, Dr. Eli Schusheim, He's the director of an organization called Efat, which is probably the largest anti-abortion organization inside Israel. There are a couple of organizations um, that are inspired by sort of Christian evangelical ideas like the Chaim and Nefesh Echad Israel. Efrat is, is um, quite different. Um, it's a Jewish organization, and it functions in quite an interesting way because though virtually all of its publicity material, and my interview with him will show, that the underlying motivation relates to demography, the way that a frat presents itself is that it is enabling women who want to terminate for financial reasons um, to have the ultimate freedom of choice by providing them with all the basic essentials that they would need to raise a child during its first year of life. So I went with him to the warehouse that he has in Jerusalem where he has stockpiles of nappies and baby baths and cots and all these kinds of things. And so that's how a frat presents itself to the pregnant woman, but how it presents itself to possible donors, and in terms of its underlying motivation, it's quite different. So when I interviewed him in 2009, he said that this is the simplest way to make aliyah, referring to Jewish immigration. I am doing the inner aliyah, Jewish childbirth. Maybe we are bringing more than all the ministry brings aliyah. We are bringing 98% of Jews without any problem. And I'm happy to speak in the Q&A about what he said to me when I asked him if he would support an Arab woman who came to him wanting to terminate for financial reasons. What, what, what is 98%? That's a good question. Basically, we are bringing 98% of Jews. You know, I don't entirely know what his percentage refers to. I mean, it could be that he's saying that of the people that approach him or that he approaches, 98% of them go ahead and don't terminate and take advantage of what's on offer to them. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so turning now to the other side of the coin. Oh, sorry. So what, were, what was his answer when you asked about the Arab woman? Oh, okay. I'll talk about that now. <laughs> um, oh, sorry. So, no, no, it's fine. Um, so he was really cagey, um, and he hedged. And first he said, of course I would help, of course I would help. I'd help anyone. And then he said, but actually, as a constitutionally Jewish organization, I wouldn't be able to help. And then he said, but Baruch Hashem, it's never happened. <laughs> so that was interesting. Baruch Hashem, means Praise be to God, yeah. I've never been approached by an Arab woman and had to give her all the nappies so that she could have her baby. Um, so, um, yes, in terms of the other side of the coin, um, support for abortion. So this is much, much more complicated in a way because when it comes to the pronatalists, 
there's quite a lot of synergy between those who are concerned about demography, those who feel a religious imperative to have a large number of children. Um, but when it comes to support for abortion, it's actually a whole mixed bag of people who don't necessarily get along or see eye to eye. So there was an, inter an interest group um, at one point that was very concerned with protecting physicians, and that was because between 1948 and 1977, um, as I mentioned, abortion was illegal, um, but it was semi-officially practiced, and it was actually being practiced predominantly in the hospitals of um, the government, um, of the main health insurance um, organization, Kupat Holim Khalid, um, that was funded by the government. Um, in 1972, when, one of the, when two of those doctors botched an abortion, two of those Kupat Holim Khalid doctors were prosecuted. And that then led that health insurance organization to start lobbying the government for a change in the law to clarify what the position of the, of the doctors were in general and to protect them. Um, and that part, partly is reflected in um, the fact that in these abortion committees, pregnancy termination committees, um, they have to have two doctors and one social worker, one of whom has to be female. And so essentially it's the doctors that remain the gatekeepers, the medical gatekeepers to women's decisions. And they are the ones that hold the power. Um, there was also concern about women's health um, which you see mirrored in debates about abortion all over the world, essentially that in a situation in which abortion was technically illegal, women would resort um, either to trying to self-induce abortions at great potential risk to themselves, or they would see so-called backstreet abortions from unlicensed practitioners um, in non-sterile conditions with non-sterile equipment, and that that would pose um, a threat to, to their immediate health and potentially also to their long-term fertility, their long-term ability to have children. Um, there was also a view that um, it, it would take a toll on women's physical health and possibly mental health as well if they were not able to control their fertility and were therefore compelled to have multiple pregnancies. There was also um, a family welfare and social stability element to those who supported access to abortion. So in 1972, there were self-styled Black Panther protests amongst Jews from the Middle East and North Africa, Mizrahi Jews. And as a result of that, an investigation was conducted and a report was published in 1974, a report on children and youth in distress, which essentially argued that part of the reason there had been unrest amongst this sector of the population was because there were large numbers of children, big families, high poverty, um, and that in order to try to minimise the unrest, um, that there should be better access to birth control and abortion. Now, there are two ways one can look at that. One can look upon it as a well-meaning, but perhaps somewhat paternalistic and patronising um, European, Ashkenazi, Jewish attitude about what is the correct number of children to have, um, and that blames unrest on people's choices rather than the state's failure to support their choices. Um, one can be even less charitable, as the sociologist Shohan Melamed has been, um, and I think there's credence to her view, that she says a neo-Malthusian rationale helped to formulate different policy trajectories for different Jewish groups. So in other words, that this desire to try to maximise the quantity of Jews inside the state of Israel was actually um, ran alongside a countervailing desire to try to limit the number of particular types of Jews in Israel, specifically the ultra-Orthodox and the Mizrahi Jewish population. 
So another element of support for abortion relates to population health. Um, so one, one thing that is evident in the abortion law and was also evident um, in discussions about abortion related to the issue of um, enabling people to terminate pregnancies if the fetus um, was found to carry some kind of genetic defect. Um, and there has been historically um, support for post-diagnostic abortions in Israel. Um, as I said, in the law itself, it's very vague about what kinds of conditions, what kinds of severity, and what the likelihood that the manifestation is. Um, and there's been a, oh, and also a program since 1978, um, a free um, testing, post, um, prenatal testing, and that's because there was essentially concern about the quality of offspring as well as the quantity. And in some ways, one can argue that this relates back to Zionism's emphasis on an idealization of a new and muscular and strong Jewish body. And that's something that's been talked about by quite a few sociologists in Israel, in particular um, Meir Weiss, um, who wrote a book called The Chosen Body about this particular subject. Um, and this this is essentially Zionism's, Zionism conceptualized the new Hebrew body um, in contrast to the weak diasporic body um, that had been unable to stand up for itself. Jews were led like lambs to the slaughter. Um, so it's all it's part of that discourse. Um, and there is a debate to be had about whether or not one can argue that this constitutes a form of negative eugenics. Now, I would argue that in order for it to constitute a form of negative eugenics, there would have to be clear evidence of a policy that intended to eliminate these deleterious genes from the population as a whole. And I haven't found evidence of that. And I don't think that one can argue that simply because there is a clause in the abortion law that enables an individual to make that decision, that it constitutes a form of negative eugenics. Um, because that individual making or not making that decision to continue or terminate the pregnancy um, in the case of fetal abnormality um, would not in and of itself lead to a cleansing of those sorts of genes from the population as a whole, which is generally the bar that is set for something to constitute eugenics. But I just wanted to draw your attention to that. That is something that has been debated in the literature. So the final group who supported access to abortion um, did so on a much more principled basis, on the basis of a woman's right to make autonomous decisions about her reproductive life. Um, but this, it has to be said, was a minority position, um, and it was defeated in 1975. So in 1975, two bills were put before the Knesset. One was a government-backed bill, and that's what eventually became the abortion law. The other was Marcia Friedman's bill, and that was a more radical bill in the sense that she was proposing that the decision of whether to abort should be left exclusively up to the woman to decide within the first 12 weeks of pregnancy. But that bill was defeated. So evidently, the discourse on women's reproductive rights, the feminist discourse, gained too little traction at the time. Um, the other um, echo of that discourse that I saw in the archives was when the... Um, debate took place about repealing um, the fifth clause, the social clause. Um, and Charlie Bitton, pictured there, who was um, former head of the Israeli Black Panther movement, he said in, during this debate, what moral right do we have to decide for a grown woman whether she will have a child or not? So he very much voiced feminist-style objections. 
Now, I would say that this discourse on women's rights has been more prominent in the discussion about abortion in Israel since the 1990s. There have been a number of um, female members of the Knesset, uh, Yael Dayan, Zahava Galon, um, Naomi Chazan, all of whom proposed um, bills to try to remove the committees. Um, but all of those bills have been knocked back as fast as they were proposed, essentially. When I interviewed Nimi Khazan, she said that she had proposed, I think, 10 or 15 times to have these committees eliminated, and every time the bill had been defeated. Um, and there is also some hesitation on the part of those who want to remove the committees, um, in that the situation as it stands, though unsatisfying from a feminist point of view, um, women are generally able to access abortions. And I think there is a fear that if the, the abortion debate is reopened, that further restrictions could be put in place, and that the status quo that works for some, albeit in an unsatisfactory way, with many hurdles, which I'll come on to in a moment, um, could be made much worse. So, <clears throat> let me just go straight. So I want to say something now about how this situation, this gap between the law and the practice in Israel, um, actually affects women's reproductive experiences and their rights. So some, of, some aspects um, of the situation are surprisingly permissive for a pronatalist state. Um, and in fact, could lead one <clears throat> to call into question whether or not Israel is as pronatalist as many scholars in particular um, have claimed it to be. As I said earlier, the vast majority of applications for abortion are approved. Um, roughly half of the abortions take place illegally, but doctors are only prosecuted. Minors require parental consent. In 2010, the Israeli Family Planning Association, they piloted a program to make the process simpler for under-19s. Since 2014, the state pays for many legal abortions. And this absence of time limits, combined with this ambiguity of what constitutes defect and extensive antenatal testing, means that there's toleration, if not outright encouragement, of post-diagnostic abortion in Israel. That means that late-term abortion um, is relatively easy, and Israel has one of the highest late-term abortion rates globally. But that superficial snapshot belies a more complex reality, because there are, in fact several barriers to women's ability to access abortion. First amongst those is the cost. So the cost to have, of having an abortion is in fact high for those women whose ages or justificatory criteria do not entitle them to state support. In 2010, the Ministry of Health actually increased the cost by 61% for single women and married women due to extramarital affairs. And there was an editorial in Haaretz at the time which said that the decision... They, there's no way to interpret this decision as anything but political um, and that it hurt the weakest in society. Now, illegal abortions cost anywhere between about 250 and 550 pounds, depending on whether or not they are um, medical, so um, an individual taking um, the abortion pill um, or the surgical removal is necessary. So that very much depends on the stage of the pregnancy. The pregnancy termination committees um, are also a barrier for many women. Um, they hinder access. There's no uniformity in how the committees function. Um, women have reported encountering very hostile attitudes from members of the committee. Um, and there are obviously delays, time delays, between when a woman first finds out she's pregnant and decides that she wants to terminate, applies to the termination committee, is seen and heard by the termination committee, approved or not approved to have her termination, 
um, and that's problematic too. And many women report experiencing the process of going before the committee um, as, a sh as a shameful experience because women are forced to relive very private and intimate details um, about um, how they became pregnant, why they want to terminate, etc., etc. There are also limited criteria um, according to which a woman may legally terminate. Um, as I mentioned, extra uh, pregnancies that are a result of extramarital relations, women are able to terminate. So a single woman, for example, um, will have a relatively easy time under that clause. But a married woman who doesn't fulfill any of the other criteria and who is pregnant by her husband, well, she either has to seek an illegal abortion or she has to lie and say that she's had an affair. Now, if she lies and says to the committee that she's had an affair and her husband knows it, and she later goes to divorce in a country where there is no secular civil personal law and marriage and divorce is within the hands exclusively of religious authorities, she may be severely disadvantaged as a self-confessed adulteress. Um, so that is not a simple and straightforward thing to do in order to obtain an abortion. Um, and indeed, reportedly, most of the illegal terminations are married women. Um, that's according to the health journalist at Jerusalem Post, Judy um, Siegel-Stiegertz. Um, also, the state recently limit, um, tightened the um, late-term post-diagnostic abortion um, criteria. Now women have to um, prove that there is at least a 30% chance of the fetus um, being born with the, um, with the uh, abnormality. So in relation specifically to the coming before the committees, um, Ronnie Abramson, who's a journalist um, and who herself went before the committee to have an abortion, um, she wrote, A single woman in Israel seeking an abortion experiences a bureaucratic tangle of dizzying proportions that is nothing short of Kafka-esque. Almost every physician on the committee, and there are quite a few, pokes and prods around your body and soul to determine how a strong and healthy Jewish uterus can inflict such an injustice on its people. A series of painful probes takes you up a humiliating chain of command. The state needs your uterus, daughter of Israel, and you feel this need even more when you try to refuse this decree. So that was her first-hand experience. And the medical sociologist Yael Hashiloni Dalev, she described um, the committee experience as a ceremony of shame and guilt in which women have to confess their sins or explain very intimate details about themselves to total strangers. And it's not just the women themselves who've gone through this experience who are criticising the committees. Israel's state controller recently conducted an investigation over 2014-2015. They published their report, um, and as reported in Haaretz in May, um, they referred to these um, committees as being an outdated, having an outdated organisational culture that imposes a bureaucratic burden. And they said that the presence of excessive bureaucracy, failure in collection and dissemination of information, lack of material in other languages, and insufficient sex education in schools and the army were all problematic. Yeah. So, in conclusion, in Israel, abortion is legally restricted, but it's widely available. The cause of this situation, of this gap, um, is the compromise necessitated by conflicts between pronatalists and those concerned with health, welfare, and rights. The principal cleavage, essentially, is rival population concerns, trying to balance the the desire to maximise the quantity of the Jewish population um, through um, heightened fertility against um, how do I phrase this? Um, against resistance um, to certain subgroups of the Israeli population 
um, having as high fertility as they have because of the perceived threat to the modernizing, modernizing project of Zionism. The effect is that women in Israel lack reproductive autonomy. And that is what I refer to as the walls of the root of the wounds. Okay, so it's when rival policymakers with opposing beliefs, values, and interests clash um, over what these policies should be, pitting Palestinian Arabs against Jews and Ashkenazim against Mizrahim. And I argue that these wars reflect much broader struggles in Israel between different population groups, um, as well as between different conceptions of the state, of whether it should be a collectivist state based on ethno-nationalism and orthodoxy, or it should be a more liberal, permissive state that respects the rights of individuals. And that's it. Thank you for listening. Okay, shall I try and turn this off and put the lights on? Thank you very much indeed, Rebecca, for the most interesting and original and stimulating uh, presentation. I found it re really gripping. Um, and um, there is a lot here which was research you did after you completed your uh, PhD thesis. So all of this was new to me. Hmm. Um, and um, I uh, want to uh, ask you to try and put this debate about a specific issue, abortion in Israel, and the struggle over abortion, in a slightly wider um, regional context, because Israel is in the Middle East, mm -hmm. uh, and the Ashkenazi elite has been very reluctant and hostile to the idea of integrating into uh, Middle East society. Israel is always, always, or the elite, have seen Israel as not belonging in the region at all, but belonging to the West. Villa in the jungle. Villa in the jungle is, is the Ehud Barak's um, uh, description, very apt description, thank you. It makes exactly the point that I'm trying to make but it's there right through from the beginning. And David Ben-Gurion once said, it's only as a result of a, of a geographical accident that we find ourselves here. Our values and our culture makes us part of Europe. Um, so what I'm suggesting to you is that reproduction birth rates wouldn't be such a big issue if Israel wanted to integrate into the region. It's because it's ethnocentric and exclusive and doesn't want to integrate with the region that birth rates become so uh, significant, so important. And, and you, you mentioned Arafat's statement that the best, his best instrument of warfare is the womb. Mm. Uh, I haven't come across this before and I don't think that it's Arab threats that make Israelis anxious. 
the anxiety is, is self-generated. Israelis all the time without Arafat talk about the demographic problem or the demographic time bomb. Well, to me, Arabs reproducing on their own land isn't a bomb and isn't a threat. It's only a threat if you are ethnocentric and indeed if you are racist. Um, so could you try and place your specific, the issue of your presentation in this slightly broader social context? Yes, but before I do, just specifically in relation to the quote from Arafat, so I was quite cautious and emphatic, and I hope this came across, in mentioning that these were alleged remarks made by Arafat. That, this quote has been one of the bugbears of my research, because um, it is quoted in an Israeli journal, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, um, that supposedly cites a newspaper report from a um, Beirut-based newspaper. And I have tried to track down a hard copy of this newspaper by friends in, based in Lebanon and failed. So I am not, in fact... The, so the quote that he made um, regarding um, seeing Palestinian women's wombs as a time bomb threatening Israel from within supposedly was made in, during the First Intifada. Um, so I think it was 1987, 88. Um, and I have not been able to corroborate it, which, which in many ways supports what you're saying. It's not the veracity of the quote or not, it's about how it's perceived. Um, in terms of regional context, I mean, I think you're right, of course, that the reason that first Zionist leaders and later Israeli leaders perceived these fertility rates to be a problem and to be a threat related to their ideological beliefs um, in part, so ethno-national um, ideology um, and seeking to establish a Jewish state. But I think one could also argue that there's another element to it um, which relates to applying a settler colonial lens, I think, to the study of Israel, which is something that I am experimenting with at the moment. So I, I, I think it's not just ideological. I think that in practical terms, seeking to establish a Jewish state in a region populated primarily by non-Jewish Arabs, um, and if we're talking about between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, then Palestinian Arabs, um, required a whole set of demographic policies. Um, and as you might remember from the first chapter of my dissertation, um, I talk about those policies um, in, in four areas. Um, and so first of all, in relation to um, automatic and state-subsidized individual and mass Jewish immigration um, via the law of return, which grants any Jew automatic rights um, to Israeli citizenship. Um, so that combined with programs run by organizations Today, like um, Nefesh Benefesh, um, that seek to facilitate um, Jewish immigration to Israel. Um, so Jewish immigration is one. Um, strategic, demographically strategic territorial policies. So making demographic calculations <coughs> about territory to annex, to occupy, to withdraw from, primarily on the basis of demography, um, is one other element. 
Um, population displacement in relation to the events of 90, the wars, the Arab-Israeli wars of 1948 and 1967. So irrelevant of why Palestinians left in both of these cases, not allowing the vast majority to return, um, though in part can be explained as a you know, security terms. Um, those security terms take into account demographic calculations. Um, so I think you're right, it's partly ethno-national ideology, but it's partly the necessities of trying to um, establish political control of that ethno-national group in a territory in which the vast majority of people in that ethno-national group did not live before 1948, and where the vast majority of people who lived in that territory were non-Jewish Palestinian Arabs. So it's that necessity, um, you know, the goal of the actual movement, that I think means that then the fertility differential is perceived in the way that it is, because according to that ideology and that historical project, that fertility differential is a threat. Thank you. Please introduce yourselves. Yes. Uh, hi, my name is Adi. I'm Israeli. Hi. And I'm a woman. Um, <laughs> uh, I, wanted, I don't know if you know this, but I wanted just to note something that I, I find uh, interesting. In the Israeli army, uh, women are allowed to, uh, to one abortion yeah. uh, during their service. But um, in cases, in, in specific cases where they're served for longer time, let's say one of the forces is laying the Nahal, which is um, usually it's longer, uh, it takes longer, uh, you're entitled of two. <laughs> so I think this, this manifests um, their normativity, since is, the Israeli army is the ultimate uh, melting pot for, for the all Israeli persona. Uh, the, very, the very essence of Zionism and the, the persona, the body you were talking about. So I think, I think it demonstrates a lot about the normativity of, of how abortions are perceived in Israel. And on that note, I would like to say that uh, I didn't have the personal pleasure, but I know, I know many women who did go through this, and actually uh, I was surprised to hear about what you described about the experience of, um, of even abortion. Most of them describe it as a formality that lasts five minutes, just some forms, and it's done. Well, it's not a pleasant experience, obviously, but it's not as bad you, of what I know, what I've, I've experienced, and, and actually it's very known, which um, leads me to, to the general question I had for you, if, if I may. Um, I get the feeling that legislation and also in practice, like how committees are, are held, are not the area where the most pressure is, is, is held upon women. But, um, but in the media and in well, every representation of every, like TV, movies, books, whatever, um, there is, again, the, the, the Zionist women persona is portrayed as a mother, obviously. Um, so I, I, would, I would like to suggest a third layer of, okay, so there's the law and there's the practice and there's the brainwash. <laughs> I don't know, the... the yeah, the, the, the less overt ones, but under the, the, the surface uh, methods of making us have another soldier for the Israeli army mm. as a baby. Mm. Um, and I think this is, uh, nowadays it might be the most uh, crucial aspect of it, because it's, it's really quite easy to, to, to end the pregnancy in Israel. Out of my, it, it is, even in practice. Uh, so I would, I, would, I would think that most of it happens on that layer. 
No, before, that's before you answer, Rebecca, could I just clarify? Did you say that women who serve in the IDF are entitled to an abortion? Yes, unless they serve in the Nahal or they yes. become officers and they are entitled of two. And is this written anywhere? Um, I'm sure. I, I can look it up. But, but everyone knows that a, a, yeah. a woman soldier, as of right, can have a free abortion when she's in the army. Yes. It will be taken care of by the army. One. One. But as a Nahal soldier, ex Nahal soldier, I can tell you that I was entitled to two and they let us know. <laughs> Just in case. So I think, I mean, just sort of following on directly from that, I think that one thing that is subtextual to the law, certainly, and to the way in which it's practiced, is that there are clear ways in which the state, at least, is encouraging certain women to have children at certain points in time. Um, and I think that's why, for example, um, married women... The sort of the idea that a married woman should proceed with her pregnancy, she shouldn't terminate. A single woman who's serving in the army should be entitled to terminate if she wants to, because she's fulfilling a different role in relation to the state at that point in her life. Mm -hmm. um, I think in relation to, and I really appreciate you sharing, you know, your friends' social networks' experiences in relation to abortion. And I think that there are obviously a multiplicity of different experiences that women <coughs> have in relation to abortion, um, and. This, I think, is where the sort of concept of intersectionality, um, which is used in gender studies quite often in relation to the ways in which different factors, whether it be socioeconomic class or race, intersect with women's rights. And I think that that is, is particularly um, true in relation to abortion, because I think if you are, um, say, an unmarried woman and you're relatively wealthy and you're, you, know, um, you become pregnant and want to terminate, it's relatively easy. And if you're not intimidated by the prospect of going before, you know, an authority of the state, um, it's less of a fraught experience. If at the other end of the spectrum, for example, you are an unregistered asylum seeker living in South Tel Aviv and you want to terminate your pregnancy, you're quite screwed because um, you are not entitled to Israeli health insurance. Um, you wouldn't want to go before the state's termination committees because you wouldn't want to register your existence in the state and potentially be deported. And you wouldn't have the money to be able to have an illegal but private abortion of a particular standard. So I think you know, how one experiences these committees and the barriers that I outlined will depend in large part on where one is in, in Israeli society. Um, in relation to the third layer that you mentioned, the sort of the pressure of the discourse, I absolutely agree. And I think that you're right. Like that is the sort of the unspoken thing that's going on potentially in relation to some of these women's reports of their committee experience um, because there is that external pressure in society um, upon not only Israeli women um, but also men to um, have children. Um, and that, I mean, the sources of that are very interesting societally and on an individual level. Um, I mean, partly it relates, again, to, you know, originally the sort of the, the legacy of the Holocaust and, you know, trying to ensure Jewish continuity and survival. Um, and there's the demographic issue and then there's the being fruitful and multiplying issue. But there are also other things, and these came up in the interviews that I conducted. So, for example, exactly as you said, um, you know, having, having as many children as you can to be in the Israeli army. Or um, one person who I interviewed, um, she said to me, people in Israel 
think you don't have one child because you don't know what's going to happen to him or her. You don't know if that child might die in war, might be blown up in a terrorist attack. So that's what is referred to generally in literature as the insurance policy effect. So in a societal context of uncertainty um, and fears about the future, people feel this pressure to have more children. And certainly just you know, based on the experiences I had when I was living in Israel um, you know, and the literature as well makes very clear that there is this very predominant discourse of pronatalism and that it has, um, to, to some extent, sort of, uh, you know, negative repercussions for those who either cannot or don't or choose not to have a child, um, who are then, you know, perceived to either be in some sense sort of uh, not doing their duty um, in relation to the state um, or their families. Um, yeah, and I think that what was I going to say? Um, Oh yes, so I think one of the things that's really interesting about this pronatal discourse is that it, it can in large part explain not just Israel's opposition to some extent to abortion, but also is behind um, a whole gamut of policies that are designed to encourage childbirth. So not just child allowances, but also Israel has unprecedented and, par and unparalleled um, advanced reproductive technologies. So for example, there are more... Um, clinics that do in vitro fertilization, IVF, in Israel um, than anywhere else in the world. There's more per capita than anywhere else in the world. Um, Israeli women are entitled to unlimited rounds of IVF treatment if they want to have a child, up, up until the birth of two or even three live children. If you contrast that to the United Kingdom, where if you have a fertility problem and you want treatment, you might, if you're lucky and you're in the right postcode, you might get three rounds of treatment, irrelevant of whether or not you conceive, irrelevant of whether or not you carry the fetus to full term um, and actually have a child. So that's quite unprecedented. And I think one can have a really interesting discussion about the extent to which this is sort of empowering for Israeli women, because on the one hand, you know, it gives somebody who wants to have a child and can't you know, all of the most advanced medical technology at their disposal, totally subsidised by the state, um, and, you know, arguably enables them to have that choice um, in a way that women elsewhere don't have. On the other hand, it puts enormous pressure on women to have children. Um, so I think, you know, it can, it can be argued in different directions, I think, the, the effect of the pronatalism. Um, well, you, you just spoke about the whole gamut of policies to encourage our Jewish childbirth. And I remember from your thesis a particularly interesting example. Uh, David Ben-Gurion used to offer a prize of £100 to any woman who had 10 children. Uh, and m most of the women who claimed and received the prize were Arab women in Israel. <laughs> Whereupon he terminated this prize. <laughs> 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 uh, it's just a, a very good example uh, from your work about the hypocrisy that underlies the policies about pronatalism. Well, that was, I mean, that was really interesting reading about that in yeah. the archives because, yeah. so yeah, so Ben-Gurion, who, as you know from what I quoted from him in 1967, yeah. was he was consistently concerned about the birth rate. Um, and he set up this scheme in 1949, and though it didn't explicitly say that it was intended to increase Jewish childbirth, it just said childbirth, 
Um, that's clearly what it was intended to do, because Ben-Gurion hadn't been talking about his concerns about low Arab fertility. Um, and then suddenly, all these Arab women, particularly in villages in the north of Israel, started claiming it. And what I saw in the archives was this fantastic paper trail of, of letters that came back from the regional governor to the prime minister's office saying, we've had more applications from Arab women um, for the birth prizes. What do we do? And these sort of responses coming back saying, well, you, you have to give them the prize um, because the law does not discriminate. And then shortly thereafter, the scheme was abolished. Um, although the official reason given was that it was because a form of actual um, child allowances, child um, insurance had been introduced. Um, so, you know, it's not entirely clear. Was it abolished because all the Arab women were applying for it and this was completely contrary to its aims? unstated aims or was it actually sincerely because there was a more structured system that was being put in place but then I think in, actually in that article that I just quoted from, from 67 Ben Gurion said how um, childbirth promotion should, should not and could not be in the hands of the state anymore um, and he had all these ideas about how it should be handed over um, to an extraterritorial organisation like the Jewish Agency um, effectively so that it could discriminate but the Jewish agency didn't want to have anything to do with it and then this all sort of came to a head in um, 1970 when the veterans um, bill doubled child allowances for people who had served in the Israeli army meaning the vast majority of the Jewish population was covered and then special additional child allowances were given to Orthodox Jews who were studying in yeshivas um, and new immigrants, new Jewish immigrants. And then there was a huge Supreme Court case about it. So basically they found another way to discriminate with child allowances by making conditional army service. Please, and please introduce yourself. Yes. Hi, my name is Anna. I'm a master's student here in media and communications. Um, and I know a little about um, women's um, reproductive health in Israel, but I wanted to ask two questions. One is about, so you mentioned intersectionality. And um, I've heard that um, the story of Ethiopian Jews, um, women who came from Ethiopia and Israel, and how they were, um, I mean, I don't know if this is true, but I've heard that, you know, a lot of times when they'd visit a gynecologist, sometimes they had their, um, you know, tubes, or I don't know how to say, basically removed. Sterilization. They, right, ster they were sterilized. It that's not the um, allegation. That's the not. allegation is that they were given a long-term acting contraceptive called Depo-Provera, okay. which is like a, um, an injection. Okay, and so I was wondering if that's yeah, if that was true, and you know, if you could speak a little bit about that, because that goes beyond the Palestinian or Arab Jewish divide. Mm -hmm. um, and the second one is about so it seems to me how you know clearly nationalism and women's rights are very much intertwined, and I was wondering like how like today, for example. What are the strategies of women's groups? How do they fight with this, um, uh, at least linguistically and on a discourse level? You know, how to say, um, basically, we are not traitor traitors, you know, um, while we're arguing for the right to abort. Um, okay, thank you for your questions. Um, in relation to the Ethiopian population, so the allegation that has been made is that um, Ethiopian... Jewish immigrants were um, given the long-term long acting contraceptive Depo-Provera disproportionately to their number in the population. Um, and further, the allegation is that the reason that they were given this was specifically to limit their fertility um, from a race, racist or racial point of view. Um, 
And the claim is that they were generally administered these in, often in transit camps um, before they even arrived in Israel. Um, and so I think also as a condition of their ability to immigrate. So there are different levels to what's, you know, to the allegations. Um, I have tried to research this. Um, the person who's done an amazing job on this um, is called Hedva Eyal, um, and she is based in Haifa, um, and there's a paper online that she's written about this. But um, so essentially what is clear is that the Ethiopian population, Ethiopian population was given this long-term contraceptive injection disproportionately to the numbers of the population. That seems evident at this point. What is less clear is why. Um, now, I interviewed um, a representative from the Ministry of Health and asked her about this during my field work. Her claim was that the reason was because the Ethiopian women themselves were asking for this particular form of contraception because it, it is a sort of invisible form of contraception um, where you go to your doctor's office and you have it um, and unlike the contraceptive pill or a condom, for example, where you know your husband knows um, what's happening, so that this was um, apparently what, according to her, this is a form of contraception they were used to using in Ethiopia and it was preferred because it meant that it was basically between the woman and her doctor. Um, this, has, this claim um, has been refuted um, by others who claim oh and also okay so then so that's one line of argument then then there's the argument that um, that doctors were indeed more enthusiastic to give um, Ethiopian women Depo Provera um, because they wanted to alleviate Ethiopian women of the burden of having lots of children um, and thought that they were helping them by giving them this particular thing because it doesn't require you don't you don't have to really un, you don't have to take it yourself it's not self-administered um, and so it's more reliable um, so there was that line of argument and then there is um, a very different line of argument which is that it's racist now it's very difficult to tell, essentially, I would say at this point, um, based on the evidence that I have seen. Um, but given the treatment of the Ethiopian population inside Israel, um, it seems at least possible, if not probable, um, that there were some racial elements in the administration of this particular contraceptive. And the question is really the extent to which it was more of a sort of paternalistic trying to help women to help themselves um, as a result of certain ideas about what would be appropriate fertility for their group versus trying to control their numbers in the population. Did they know this, that they were administered this contraception? Is this clear? So no, that's not clear either. Okay. Um, I mean, one of the allegations is they didn't know what was being done to them. Okay. Um, yeah. So language barriers, the first generation doesn't even speak Hebrew. Yeah, exactly. And that it was being done in the camps as a condition for immigration and that you know even if people knew what it was that they had no choice um, in that context um, so this is I mean I know that the state certainly admitted that it had disproportionately administered but I, I as far as I'm aware there has been no um, admittance beyond that about motivations um, it's revealing that they said they're helping these women yeah. it's a very odd way of helping women that affecting their fertility without telling them about it Yes, um, but I think the idea, I mean, the idea that one is helping a woman by reducing her fertility, that is a much more common idea amongst, I mean, for example, if you think about inter international development organizations, um, 
I mean, the whole population control movement essentially yes, it's is about partly. Board. You, this, this is the sure, policy. Sure, sure. This is what you are doing. Whereas in this case, it's underhand, and there is a racial element to it. Yeah, but there's a racial element to the international development movement using, you know, for example, um, there have been huge development programs um, distributing um, long-term acting contraceptives like Norplant amongst women in Egypt. Um, and there's a huge debate um, about whether or not this is sort of a benign or beneficial act by development organisations um, because women in these parts of the world have previously not been able to control their fertility and have you know, suffered physically, mentally, emotionally, um, or you know, if in fact it's extremely self-interested because it's you know, born of white fear about being outnumbered by the global south, or if it's um, just extremely patronising to impose your idea of what constitutes the perfect family size on other cultures and other places in the world. So, I mean, I feel like this is part of a, a bigger debate. Yeah, and it, it, uh, Seth Hansiska, UCL, uh, lecturer in Jewish Muslim relations, I guess it begs the question, if developmental policies, like you had in India and Egypt and all this really interesting literature on population explosions and control yeah. in the context of Cold War geopolitics yeah. and how developmentalism was actually tied to modernization projects, what is it about Zionism and Israeli nationalism that uh, sort of stood apart from this movement and actually against the idea of population control or only selected population control surreptitiously for certain types of citizens, be they Jewish or non-Jewish? So the specifics of this particular policy in relationship to Zionism as an ideology, if Zionism also is seeing itself as very much a kind of modern nationalist movement, why is it existing in this way in the wider spectrum? Um, I also, I mean, if I can tack on another question, I was curious as to sort of, um, this, this whole topic is, is really fascinating and you know, unbelievably important, what the tension is between um, these sorts of pronatalist policies and what kind of Jewish bodies are encouraged to appropriate. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm particularly interested about uh, sort of gay men and surrogacy policy in Israel today. Mm -hmm. I know that there's, there were reports, for example, during the earthquake in Nepal about the Israeli government um, evacuating Nepalese surrogates who were working for Israeli gay men um, and then either not allowing the rest of their families or only getting out the kind of pregnant women. Um, and how, how have you seen this particular question of surrogacy uh, and gay surrogacy as connected to the demographic question. So are gay men legitimate vessels for procreation because they will increase the Jewish demographic, or is homosexuality because of its problematic relationship to Jewish law uh, sort of excluded from state practice? And how do gay couples sort of circumvent this? Um, and you know, the argument is that sort of they therefore promote this idea of homo-nationalism, that mm. gay men actually procreate under the guise of pronatalist policies mm -hmm. of the state mm -hmm. for Jewish demographic reasons, mm -hmm. uh, even though the Jewish content of the religious state is sort of undermining homosexual reproduction, if that makes sense. It does make sense, and actually, uh, I was sort of thinking as you were speaking about the difference accorded in terms of Jewish status under the law of return um, and by orthodox authorities. So I think partly what facilitates um, gay sur international gay surrogacy from Israel um, and the return of the children that are born as a result um, is that under the law of return, 
they're fully Jewish, so yeah. they constitute Jewish citizens. Um, uh, so I think that's... I mean, I think you're right. I think this is a form of homo-nationalism. Um, it's not something that I have looked into um, in my own research, though I think it's fascinating and I would really like to. Um, or... I mean, Israel has sort of, in some ways, paved the way, both legally and in practice, with surrogacy. So Israel was one of the first countries in the world to um, formulate a surrogacy law. Um, and I don't think that's by coincidence, um, in terms of, in practice, the, the fact that there is um, this trajectory of many gay Israeli men um, going elsewhere to find um, surrogates, um, and the fact that the state um, makes it relatively easy for them to bring back their children and have them immediately recognised as Jewish citizens. Um, I think it, it is a logical outcome of the ethno-national element of Israeli pronatalism, um, essentially. Um, in terms, and I'm sorry I can't say any more about it, simply that it's just beyond my, my field. In terms of selective population control, I mean, I think it's a really interesting one because it seems to me that the groups that Israel sort of attempts, let's say many policymakers within Israel have historically seen as undesirable from a, from a pronatalist point of view, would be very similar to those that... Um, you know, into the international population control movement, international development agencies would see in those terms. So, for example, you know, groups of colour, whether they be Ethiopians or Mizrahi Jews from the Middle East and North Africa, um, Palestinian Arabs, um, and also religious groups, so the ultra-Orthodox. Um, I think that the, the state very much has in common, um, but with, with, with other um, discourses and, and organisations. Uh, when it comes to the encouragement of fertility amongst particularly the founding elite Ashkenazi group, well, I think that has to do with the particularities of Zionism um, as a movement and project within the region and for all the reasons I explained earlier in relation to demography, why it has sought to encourage um, fertility there. I think there is certainly a tension with the sort of the, the modernising agenda which relates which seeks to reduce fertility and with the um, with the creation and the maintenance of a Jewish majority um, in Israel. And you see this in the, the propaganda of the Alliance Israelite Universal in its films that depicts education and schooling for Mizrahi Jews in North Africa and Iraq and elsewhere where they talk about the deprivation, the lack of cleanliness in the mm -hmm. Jewish Mela, mm -hmm. and the desire to sort of introduce hygiene, which is the subtext of also reducing the number of children. Yeah. And there were various organizations that did exactly that. So, for example, Hadassah, um, which started as the Women's um, Zionist Organization of North America during the mandate period, um, they were very concerned with introducing all these modern methods of hygiene and sanitation and child rearing. Um, and it very much had, I mean, this is exactly what, you know, they, and they're originating from the sort of, you know, liberal elite in, in the States that has the same ideas about its own discriminated against minority populations. Um, you know, and it is, a, it is a way of trying to impose a certain idealised family size and, and way of life, I think. Um, but as I said, I mean, I think there is definitely this tension and there has been this conflict between these, these totally different population um, prerogatives, like one, the sort of maximising the quantity of Jews and the other, 
you know, not certain kinds of Jews that are seen as less desirable by that elite um, or, yeah, or the non-Jews. Yes, please. My name is Isan. Uh, I read your article a while ago, uh, since I'm writing my dissertation on the issue. Oh. And um, for me, the part about Palestine was missing. So I, I, I wanted to focus on abortion rights in Palestine. Uh, and then I, I read your article, and I was really interested in all, in all the demographic, demographic issues. But um, So abortion in Palestine is illegal. Mm -hmm. and. My question is whether there is any organization that is close to Ifrat, not in the sense of like anti-abortion organization since abortion is illegal, but something that um, either encourage women um, or I don't know, something that I can compare it with Ifrat organization. Um, so the closest thing I found was the uh, center in Bethlehem called Betil Am, which is um, safe house mm -hmm. where women with unwanted pregnancy can go there and they, uh, they are kept uh, safe there until they uh, give birth and then they separate the child from the mother and that's it. And this is kind of not a question <coughs> but the way to deal with unwanted pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So I just, so uh, regarding the um, Arafat uh, statement, I, I also uh, run into it. Um, but I don't think that it's make whether he's saying that or he didn't, like I don't think it's it's make it uh, better since both sides are using women as a weapon in war. And mm -hmm. I don't know, I just wanted to ask what can you tell me more about the situation in Palestine? Um I wish I knew more about the situation in Palestine. Um, but my own research is focused specifically on Israel's policies and practices. Um, what I do know in brief is that um, East Jerusalem Palestinians are entitled to abortions inside Israel, legal abortions through, provided by the state. Um, and theoretically, um, Palestinians who live in the West Bank, as I understand it, are entitled to travel to Israel with a medical permit um, in order to have an abortion inside Israel. But my understanding is that very, very few do. Um, it's quite interesting, actually, when to sort of read about how abortion in Palestine is represented in the media um, because oftentimes it, it very much um, like I was reading a piece in Foreign Policy magazine actually about this recently and um, it, it felt a little bit like pinkwashing in, in the sense of um, the, the discourse was women, Palestinian women in the West Bank abortion is completely illegal they can't have abortions which I know not to be the case um, as a result of something I'll explain in a minute. Um, and they often really need them because otherwise they're going to be killed as a result of in an honour crime. Um, and thank God for Israel where abortion is completely legal um, and extremely liberal and they can come and they can have abortions. And I found this like an extremely problematic like representation both of the abortion situation in Israel, of the ability of Palestinian women to get into Israel to access abortions and of the reasons why women in Palestine would want abortions and their ability to access them. So my understanding in relation to West Bank Palestinians in particular, um, is that the um, abortion medication, um, so what is called um, Cytotec or Mesoprostol, Mephoprostine, so the two pills that you can take to self-induce abortion very effectively up until 12 weeks and often thereafter, are widely available in pharmacies um, and widely prescribed um, in pharmacies in the West Bank. 
Um, the organization, there's an international organization you might have heard of called Women on Web, um, which, and Women on Waves, and they um, perform often offshore abortions in um, vessels that they dock, um, or they send abortion medication in the post women who can't ca access it. I'm pleased that. So as far as I'm aware, like based on their website that I looked at recently, um, they will help women in Palestine. Um, but you're absolutely right. Um, officially, um, abortion is illegal in Palestine, um, except if there is an immediate threat to the woman's life. Um, that's all I can really say about the Palestinian context. I'm not sure if there is an organisation equivalent to a frat or since abortion is legal, if there would need to be. It's really interesting what you say about this um, sort of house, safe house in um, Bethlehem, which sort of really recalls what used to happen um, in, in many places uh, when women were faced with unwanted pregnancies and would, would go to places exactly like that um, to deliver their babies essentially in secret um, and then... Because Give them up for adoption. when you deal with demographic issues, it's just it's a not one side war. Of course, there has to be like a reaction and response for that. And I was wondering whether in this case it's just um, women became just weapons. I mean, so uh, some, something else I could on? mention that's not West Bank Palestine, but um, there's interesting research that's been done by an anthropologist. You might have come across her, Rhoda Ann Khanane birthing the nation. So she did ethnographic research in amongst um, Palestinian Arab women, citizens of the state of Israel and the Galilee. Um, and she was really interested to know about what sort of motivated them in relation to their decisions about how many children to have and when to have children. And she said that one, um, one factor that did come up was this sense of fulfilling your obligation to the nation um, of Palestine um, by having children. But she said that that ran up exactly in the same in the Israeli case against rival discourses about being, say, the modern Palestinian woman who doesn't have lots and lots of children um, and a sort of, you know, ball and chain to the kitchen sink with ten kids running around. So that, you know, that there are very, there are tensions between these discourses and multiple pressures on women and that affect their decision making in this regard. Um, but I think you're right in terms of, you know, one should see the agency of women in all of this through all these policies, whether it's resisting these policies or trying to sort of circumvent them or ignore them or whatever it happens to be. Of course, they're there. That's not the research that I've done because I'm a political scientist, come historian, so I've looked at the archives and the state policy. But there is really fascinating research by sociologists, by anthropologists that's looked into this. I'm just not aware of it having been done myself within the context of Palestine, which I think is a huge omission. Um, and I really wish there was that research, and I'm not sure why it doesn't exist. So, yeah, uh, we have time for one more question. Okay. Yes. Well, no, I was, my name is Natalie. Uh, I'm a student, MSc student also. I wanted to know because, like you mentioned, this board that accepts or denies the abortion for women, and I come from a country in which abortion is illegal. So for me, like this idea of or and something. I also What's your country? Argentina. Mm -hmm. And I read that here also, like I, I became interested in this idea of having like a medical board to accept or not your abortion. And I read that here also the NHS has kind of board. And I want to know which are the main differences that you found between this board, this like West European board, and a less liberal board from Israel. 
Because for me, like, both are amazing. I mean, <laughs> from the point of view that I come from a country in which, like, you, poor women are in jail or dead yeah. because of the abortions. Yeah, and my understanding is I think there are seven countries in the world, Argentina being one of them, and most of them being in South America, yeah. that completely um, yeah. restrict women's access to abortion. Um, and I, and I, you know, I was very keen at the beginning to emphasise that there is obviously a very wide spectrum here, um, and that Israel is in the middle. And I think you know the sort of the the relative problems of going before an abortion committee and then being confronted with the cost is sort of pales in in comparison to exactly as you say, being incarcerated um, as a result of trying to say self-induce an abortion and failing and possibly dying. Um, in relation to the um, medical boards, so in, in England and Wales, there are not committees as such. The way that it works is that two doctors have to approve the termination and they have to sign off on the sheet. Now, often the way this works in practice is that there are forms that are pre-signed by doctors um, which is something that sort of the pro-life groups that protest here complain about, and they say, you know, it's, it shouldn't be seen as just this formality; it should be taken much more seriously. Um, but, but that's the way that it, it currently is. The campaign that I mentioned at the beginning, the We Trust Women campaign, what they're trying to do, and I can see how, from an Argentinian perspective, this would be, you know, <laughs> totally off the Richter scale in terms of empowering women, um, is they want to basically take abortion out of the criminal law altogether make it a non-legal issue, make it simply um, a medical procedure like any other medical procedure. Like if you had to have an operation on any part of your body, you wouldn't need to have some kind of medical gatekeepers sort of morally judging you and your legitimacy to you know, demand an abortion. Um, and that is the situation that currently exists in Canada. In Canada, um, abortion is just a, seen as a medically essential service, and it also exists in some Australian states, um, and that's what they're trying to do here. Uh, and you know, there's a debate about whether or not people here are ready for this, um, or if it's if it's sort of going too far for what the population is ready for. I had a really interesting debate about this last week with many pro-choice campaigners here in the UK who are involved in this, and I said, you know, coming from my Israeli research, like one should be so careful because you know you have this potential to like you reopen this whole debate, and you might think right now that even having to have two doctors sign off is unacceptable and you know you're disempowering women and not giving them free choice but for people on the other side either this is still an incredibly complex moral issue um, or or and connected to that the issue is really about time limits and whether or not the time limits should be reduced and so you could have this huge debate about whether or not we should just end the criminalization of abortion that winds up resulting in time limits being reduced so women here can only abort up to 20 weeks instead of 24 um so yeah, so that's, that's the We Trust Women campaign um, and what they're aiming for. But you're absolutely right. I mean, there are many, many places in the world where women are even more heavily restricted and whose lives are placed at risk as a result. Yeah, no, I didn't want to like to, to make the victim, but, but uh, the idea of like knowing exactly that the difference, because I saw that here as well, it's like kind of, a, of an issue, even if it's legal. Yeah. Right? So it's interesting. And here, I mean, again, it's exactly the same as in Israel. There's the intersectionality issue, you know, where certain women in the population um, don't have the same kind of access. And that's partly dependent on geography. Um, there's an issue of having to travel to have abortions, particularly at late stages, um, you know, in places that are remote, that don't have the facilities to do late-term abortions. Um, and there are issues for refugees and asylum seekers. Um, so... If I can add just one little perspective. So I'm from Georgia, the, the country, and there abortion is legal since the Soviet Union. And, um, but because the Orthodox Church is so popular, 
many doctors refuse to give abortions, hmm. and private hospitals are allowed to, you know, not offer it at all. So then you have to go from a doctor to a doctor and yeah. convince them to give you abortion. And, you know, you talked about shaming and the skills. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. And that exists here too. There's a conscientious objector clause, so that anybody. Well, it's very interesting. Um, it's about. Um, participating in the abortion itself rather than caring for women who have had abortions but often there's some midwives and doctors will refuse to even support any a woman at any point in the process um, of having an abortion or recovering from an abortion this actually raises you're not Israeli right so why Israel is that a specifically interesting case or just um, like is it completely different in other countries should we, I mean, oh, I'm, I'm oh, happy to sorry. talk to you if you wanted to wrap up, but I'm, and I'm happy to talk to you about that afterwards in terms of my sort of personal trajectory. That's fine, there is no, oh, our time is up, but please answer the last, okay, this last sure, question. Sure, sure. Why Israel? Um, I, I think I came at this from quite a different trajectory, so I wasn't sort of thinking, oh, I want to study abortion or be the most interesting country. It was more that I had been studying, I'm Jewish, I'd been studying sort of Israeli history um, since I was an undergraduate, and I was fascinated because what I was taught during my first sort of Middle Eastern history classes completely contradicted what I had been told by my parents growing up. And so then I was like, ooh, what's really happened here? Um, and then I think I became particularly drawn to this issue of, um, of demography and specifically of whether or not there had been this sort of, these, you know, what are claimed in the literature to be racist um, reproductive health policies. And I sort of thought, I really want to know if that's true um, and what has happened. And so that's why I wound up studying abortion in Israel within the context of that broader question of whether or not these sort of demographic calculations had underpinned these policies and had these policies sort of existed across time in all areas or were they limited to certain points in time um, and certain areas. So, yeah, that's how I got into it. <laughs> and if I remember rightly, the last chapter in your thesis was about a comparative perspective which dealt with different countries and the different approaches to issues of production. Uh, so it's a really interesting thesis. You've done a lot of subsequent research. I really look forward to reading the book on the War of the Wounds. And um, I would like to bring this seminar to an end. First, by thanking uh, all of you for coming. It's been a very small group, but exceptionally cosmopolitan and interesting <laughs> yeah. group and I'd like to thank you Rebecca for sharing with us the results of your uh, recent research on this uh, issue and for dealing um, so fully with uh, all of our questions and all I can say is that we didn't have such interesting seminars when I was a student here 46 years ago <laughs> So I'd like you to join me in thanking Rebecca for her presentation.